Hello and welcome to this slightly ambitiously titled event after the pandemic, long-term health and social care funding challenges. Apologies for the slight delay in the kickoff, but welcome both to those in the room and those joining virtually. My name is Graham Atkins, I'm the Associate Director at the Institute for Government. Uh, thank you very much for joining us for this event, which has been supported by the Health Foundation. So over the past 18 months, the pandemic has hit health and care services hard. The NHS has had to deploy, redeploy the vast majority of staff twice uh, during the first and third waves of COVID, both to staff intensive care wards and to respond to COVID. The NHS still is operating with enhanced infection control procedures to reduce the amount of care it can offer. And as of July this year, and probably a figure that I imagine many of you are familiar with at this point, there were 5.6 million people waiting for an elective operation. That's almost 30% more than the pre-pandemic equivalent in July 2019. But even before that, the NHS had a large number of vacancies, was increasingly undertaking large numbers of operations, and had routinely been missing all kinds of waiting times targets by increasingly large margins. So what can be done? How much money would it take to catch up with waiting lists? Do we need a more resilient NHS? And how on earth might any of this be paid for? So to discuss these issues and more, I'm really delighted to be joined by a great panel. We've got a wealth of expertise, both health and economics and elsewhere. We've got Anita Charlesworth, Director of Research of the Real Centre at the Health Foundation. Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist at the IFG. Uh, Sarah Neville, Global Health Editor at the Financial Times. And fourth, we hope to be shortly joined by Paul Bristow, a member of the Health and Social Care Select Committee. So after opening remarks, I'm going to ask a few questions to the panel before opening up to a Q&A, and then aim to close this event at quarter past, uh, sorry, quarter to five. Uh, before we kick off, I just want to make three brief housekeeping arrangements. We're not sitting in a particularly brilliantly ventilated room, so if you do have a mask with you, please wear one if you have one to hand. Um, we will be live tweeting from at IFG events using the hashtag IFGCons21, so please do follow and tweet along. Um, and this is a public event on the record, uh, so there will be an audio and video recording uploaded online afterwards. So uh, with that in mind, I'd like to kick off with you, Anita. Um, government set out big plans to build back better in health and social care. It's promised it's going to tackle growing waiting times and reform social care. So with all this new money going in, what, what is the outlook? What can we expect <coughs> from health and social care funding over the next few years? Yes. <clears throat> so I'll, 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 I'll first of all um, talk through the nature and of the pressures um, on the NHS, broadly speaking, over the decade, and then on social care. <clears throat> For the NHS, there are um, three very obvious things that we're going to need to address over the rest of this decade and one very significant choice. So if I start then with the things that we're going to need to address, one of the absolute critical things which at the moment is obviously an enormous uncertainty is just what does uh, COVID look like over the medium term. So we're moving from a pandemic phase of the virus to endemic uh, disease. But what does that endemic disease quite look like in terms of scale and nature of outbreaks? How long are we going to be vaccinating uh, uh, people? Um, how many people are we likely to have in hospital? Kind of adding to uh, winter pressures. Are they winter 
or uh, does, it, does it manifest in a slightly different way? And if COVID continues to circulate in the population as a significant uh, issue, um, what sort of infection control standards do we need in hospital? And the latter point sounds really techy, but is actually really decisive in this because the need for social distancing and infection control means that for any given number of doctors and nurses, number of hospital beds, we can see very many fewer patients because everything takes that bit longer yeah, um, and it's that bit more complex. So that's been actually one of the biggest effects, if you like, of COVID. It's that it's not so much, I mean, other than obviously at the very peak, the patients, the cost of the patients who were in the hospital um, directly with COVID. It's that to manage that risk in hospitals requires them to operate in a very different way. And that adds enormously to cost. And brings me to the second issue then, obviously, which is the backlog. So we're all very aware, I think, that there are 5.6 million people on the waiting list. That means probably we all know somebody who's, um, who's, who's waiting for uh, care. But the expectation is that actually that is not the highest that the waiting list will go. So during COVID, obviously many people have not been able to, who were already on the list, have not been able to get treatment as quickly, but a lot of people who would have expected to have come through to the waiting list have not appeared so far. And the estimates are that there's up to 8 million people missing from the waiting list. And what no one's quite sure about is how many of them come back. And this is, when you add that in, that's where you get to the sort of figures that Sadiq Javid has talked about of a waiting list potentially of 13 million people. So the really toxic combination is 13 million people plus ongoing infection control, really constraining the way that hospitals could operate and repeated <clears throat> outbreaks that mean that um, things like intensive care is under pressure and we can't do surgery, planned surgery all year round. Those are the, um, the third thing, though, is that um, the NHS, for those of you who are Lewis Carroll fans, I always like to describe it as like the Red Queen. By and large, in the NHS, you have to run to stand still. So there are more of us in this country. We are getting older. We seem to be having more chronic disease. And also, very wonderfully, it's problem of success. We can do more. So to, to maintain standards, we're having actually to provide um, more care and at cost. So those three things together, if you take sort of, you know, reasonably optimistic assumptions about COVID, you know, assume 75% um, of that, uh, those missing patients reappear, so fairly modest assumptions about underlying pressures, you're into a scenario where the NHS is going to need funding growth that exceeds um, inflation exceeds economic growth for the rest of the decade rather than the sort of three years that has been so far we've uh, identified uh, as, as receiving the levy money for. for. Um, and then the big choice, I think, for government, which will come out, I think, as quite a theme in the COVID inquiry, is how far we prioritise resilience. And in addition to meeting those direct service challenges, we try to build a health service which has, if you like, a bigger buffer for unexpected events because uh, scientists think that whilst hopefully 
Um, something on the scale of COVID is unlikely to happen very quickly again. It is nevertheless the case that they're expecting more of this kind of uh, break, uh, um, in, in infections to appear. And we went into COVID with fewer doctors, nurses and beds and scanners <clears throat> than most of our um, European partners and, and um, North American uh, countries, um, which meant that we had very little capacity to deal with this. And obviously, if we wanted to have more resilience, that means you're not running your system as hot on the peak of efficiency. And this is an issue, obviously, across the economy with things like just-in-time supply lines, the issues we've got at the moment, you know, with the concerns around gas. Have we prioritised if operational efficiency over resilience? And where, as a country, do we want to be um, on that? So, obviously, the plan was that, the, in some senses, that the NHS had the backlog. That was three years. It would get three years of the bulk of the levy money, but then the backlog would be worked through, and then social care would receive more of the, back, uh, of the levy to do, um, obviously, the cap. But the cap is one really, really, really important issue in social care, and I think it's a missing pillar of welfare state. But it's not the only issue. And again, just as I talked about underlying pressures in the NHS, we've got underlying demographic changes affecting social care. We're all obviously aware of the ageing of the population. But again, problems of success. Very wonderfully, actually, we have more younger people with learning uh, disabilities, with, with other forms of disability who are living much longer than they used to, but needing a lot of care. So Down syndrome life expectancy is, 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 is now almost 60, whereas, I mean, certainly when I was a teenager, it would have been under 30. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, so those issues, um, equally in children's services, issues, uh, expectations are also rising. If you take children with autism coming into adulthood, you know, their, their parents, their families, they themselves want to do a lot more than just live, yeah? Um, but that needs help. You've also got an issue of provider sustainability and critically within that, the workforce for social care. And then finally, access to care because many, many people, older people have unmet needs and are not getting help and support they need. So very big agenda on both social care and NHS. Big question about whether or not the levy can do it all and where the funding comes from after 2025. Great, thanks Anita. That's two very clear big challenges and a question. Uh, suddenly that extra money isn't sounding quite so massive. Um, but Gemma, can I, can I come to you and perhaps extend Anita's Lewis Carroll metaphor? You know, to the rest of the public sector, you know, the NHS often looks like Alice in Wonderland with the, with the scale of funding increases it gets. So, so really what's the wider picture? What can we expect over the course of the next few months with the rest of public services? Sure. I mean, if you look at the numbers that the Chancellor has set out as being what's the pot of money that's going to be available to allocate in the spending review, once you strip out the money that's already been allocated to the NHS, to social care, to schools, to defence, to overseas aid, that does leave quite a tight settlement for the other unprotected areas of spending. It's not as tight as the last two multi-year spending reviews we've seen in 2010 and 2015. Those in 2010, we had a real terms cut for those unprotected areas over the whole course of the spending review. In 2015, a small real terms increase. This time, slightly more money available, but the profile of that may be quite difficult to deliver. So as it stands, the planned increases for those other unprotected areas is pretty much well, it's actually a small real terms cut in year one, a small increase in year two, and then most of the money is coming in year three. And 
that will be pretty challenging to deliver given that it's not just the NHS and social care that are coming out of the pandemic with some pent up needs. Um, there is obviously demands to try and catch up on the lost schooling uh, that kids have had. Some money has gone into that, but not as much um, as Kevin Collins uh, had asked for. Uh, there are quite significant backlogs in the courts, for example. Um, there are also some existing sort of pressures in other service areas. So we've the government has committed to recruiting 20,000 extra police officers, for example, but no extra money has yet gone into the courts and prisons system to sort of deal with the knock-on effects of having more police officers who will presumably be arresting more people, sending more people to court and putting more people in prison. Um, uh, Right across the public sector, there were issues growing before the pandemic around recruitment and retention of workers. Um, so that's certainly an issue in the NHS, which Anita's already talked about, um, but it was true across other public services as well. And partly that stems from the fact that post-financial crisis, one of the ways in which public spending growth was held down was by uh, imposing freezes and then small real terms increases on public sector pay. There was a certain amount of mileage in that policy, but even pre-pandemic, it was getting to the point where lots of public services, whether it was teachers, police officers, prison officers, uh, were struggling to recruit the numbers that were needed and to retain experienced staff within those services. Uh, so one real question for the services they face another round of uh, tight spending growth will be how do you do that if you don't really have much further to go in terms of holding down pay growth, which is a big part of the budget for a lot of these services. Um, and there are obviously new aspirations from the government that it will want to deliver on in the spending review, in particular the, the aspirations around levelling up. So I think the spending review will be interesting to see what the government sets out as its priorities. Are those the same priorities it had pre-pandemic or has the pandemic changed how it thinks it now wants to uh, prioritise that spending? Um, there will be more money available in the uh, spending review for capital spending. Um, that budget is bit looser, the government wants to spend up to 3% of GDP there. Uh, so there may be more, more mileage in extra money for infrastructure uh, than there is for extra money for day-to-day -day, uh, service delivery. Um, to end on a sort of more positive note, um, one of the things that the pandemic did do was to give a real kick to innovating ways of delivering uh, services. There was a lot more use of technology right across the public sector, whether that was um, greater use of uh, digitised transfer of information between police forces and the courts, uh, whether that was seeing your GP virtually, um, obviously uh, kids were taught virtually. Um, and so one thing that hopefully the spending review will grapple with is understanding which of those things actually really worked and improved the delivery of services, made things more efficient and should be continued with and embedded within the way services are delivered and which of those actually were necessary during the pandemic, but really aren't right uh, to continue with. I mean, I, I don't think anyone thinks we should continue to teach our kids virtually. Um, they're going back to the classroom. So there'll be a mix of those practices that have worked. And this was a really good kick to get people to try things to do, do things differently and those that, that haven't so much. Thanks, Gemma. So not, not entirely a rosy picture, but, but some reasons for optimism. So, Sarah, if I could put a very practical question to you. I mean, there's loads of staff vacancies. There's still quite a lot of bed shortages. We're still caring for some people with COVID in hospitals. I mean, like, what, what levers can the government actually pull to tackle some of these problems? Well, there's no question that the government is facing some truly wicked challenges here. Record waiting lists, which 
the other panellists have referred to, which are in part the legacy of 30 years in which we reduced bed numbers without a corresponding investment in community care. We've got a terribly fragmented social care system for which, as became all too apparent during the pandemic, neither the government nor the NHS has ever really taken responsibility. So there was nobody to fight the sector's corner when it came to uh, you know, getting supplies of PPE or getting their fair share of uh, testing. Um, but nevertheless, I think there is still hope. And I think it lies in what Gemma refers to, the power of innovation, um, some of which was already happening, some of which has been unleashed by the pandemic. And if we can only disseminate some of this more widely through the NHS, I think it will make an enormous difference because the NHS is not, to be frank, always terribly good Sorry. at uh, taking from one part of the system uh, innovations that have proved effective. There does tend to be a bit of not invented here about the NHS, I think. Um, it was interesting, actually, to see that mentioned with the appointment of um, uh, General uh, Gordon, uh, Sir Gordon Messenger, um, to uh, review NHS leadership. That's obviously part you know, what he's going to be looking at. Um, but thinking about some of the things that I see as a reporter, you know, going out in normal pre-pandemic times, at least ar ar around the country, um, just a mile or two away from where, where we're sitting now is Salford Royal Hospital, one of the most respected trusts in the country. I think everybody would acknowledge exceptionally well-led and its staff receive their annual pay increments only if they can satisfy their bosses that they're meeting various sort of key requirements, um, such as undertaking particular training modules. So this is really at least a step towards an element of performance-related pay. And politicians have been very, have always been very nervous of, of advocating that. I think they see it as a sort of third rail for a taxpayer-funded centralised system. But the staff that I spoke to at Salford and actually their union representatives as well were, were very happy with it. Um, and certainly uh, the, 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 the quality of care that was being achieved at the hospital was exceptional. And one of the other things they did was uh, at the sort of front of every ward, there was a huge whiteboard um, of information and it showed things like, you know, when a patient last fell or the proportion suffering from pressure ulcers and data was being very clearly used both to, to sort of reassure families and drive up performance. Um, and talking to the, the then chief executive, Sir David Dalton, who's actually since uh, mo moved on, but he really said to me, you know, safer care is also cheaper care uh, because if somebody doesn't get a pressure sore, they're going to stay in that bed a shorter time. You can save it for another patient. Um, and I guess the real prize for any health system is reducing length of hospital stay. That's the single biggest cost. And again, there are some fascinating examples of ingenuity um, that I've come across around the country. In, in Yeovil Hospital in Somerset, for example, um, one of the nurses had the idea of setting up an ambulatory care unit so that when people were brought in, they didn't automatically get funneled into A&D and thus flow into the the main hospital where they would often have been admitted, they were treated um, and sent home. 
And, you know, this was a sort of relatively simple structural change in the way patients were, you know, sort of moving through the hospital. It required, obviously, some investment, but not massive investment, but it's made an enormous difference and has really reduced the... Um, the, the, the length of stay. Um, this admittedly was pre-pandemic. I would have to ch check back in and see what it is now. But certainly before the pandemic, they'd reduced their length of stay from 5.7 days on average to less than four days. And the, the financial implications of that relatively small sounding reduction are, are actually enormous. Um, I think the other thing you know that uh, Anita referred to was the need to make us as a nation more resilient. And this, of course, means putting a far greater focus on preventative health care to reduce all the harms of obesity and alcohol overuse and, and the like. Um, and here, too, we're starting to see some really imaginative and innovative thinking with an increasing recognition that the NHS actually can't do all this on its own. It may need commercial partners. And we saw a huge deal that was struck just a month or so ago between Novartis, the Swiss pharma company, and the NHS, under which in Clisaran, Novartis's new twice-yearly injection to reduce cholesterol, is ultimately going to be rolled out to about 1.8 million people who've been identified as being most at risk of cardiovascular disease. It, this deal worked for both sides. Novartis got access to a guaranteed volume market, the, 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 the dream for all uh, pharma companies, and the NHS got a, a treatment at a reasonable price, which may hugely reduce the number needing expensive treatment for a heart attack in the years and, and possibly even decades to come. Um, so uh, I was going to talk a bit more about technology, but Gemma's already done that. Uh, so perhaps I'll leave it there. But um, in short, I think we can, if we embrace some of these changes, actually see a step up in productivity over the coming years, even as populations continue to grow and age and putting such a massive strain on the NHS. Great. Thanks, Sarah. That's a really interesting uh, note of optimism. It's also just really interesting to hear about what's happening across the country from, uh, from Salford to Somerset. So, Paul, given some of those challenges and, and some of the opportunities that Sarah outlined, what should the government be prioritising to build that better? Uh, well, thank you very much for inviting me to come and talk, and uh, apologies for being slightly late, but I, I'm so pleased I did come um, and, and listen to you, Sarah, because I think um, what you've said about Salford is just completely up my street and is basically what I was going to talk about um, a little bit about. So I think that's that's um, an amazing to hear that this, this sort of thing is... Um, is happening because every sort of 20 years or so that I've been involved in healthcare politics, um, health and social care politics, we've um, been told perhaps every two or three years that um, both social care and the NHS needs more money, it needs more capacity, i.e. workforce, as well as, you know, uh, elective capacity, and a plan. And the key for this um, government, I believe, in kind of building back better is that in three years' time, that we don't have the same call for more money, more capacity, and a plan, uh, and that we're actually doing this. The question was, what you know, what 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 things do we, we do we need to do that demonstrate levelling up? I mean, I think first and foremost, the biggest challenge that we face is obviously uh, managing the the elective backlog. Um, I feel very sorry for a lot of NHS staff because we've been told that this is an enormous national emergency, COVID, and 
They've got us through this, uh, you know, amazing, challenging kind of process. But just as we get through the process, just as you get over the, the top of the, the mountain, there's an even bigger mountain ahead of you, which is now the uh, managing this sort of backlog. And for me, I, I think this, again, is, is a national effort worthy of central, um, you know, government uh, passion and, and, and delivery. Because it's, and we've also obviously got the, the money, but in order to try and get through this backlog, I'd, it's not as easy as just throwing money at it. There's a number of different challenges here, and I'd just like to go slightly through them. The first is around workforce. I mean, I think that was being talked a little bit earlier. You can't just grow consultants on trees. You know, they take seven, eight years to, to come come through, and um, we need to obviously talk, talk, start talking about how we train these consultants, train our healthcare professionals, and we do that um, now. You know, we need to double, quite frankly, the number of people who are training uh, in this country, and we need to make, need to make sure that we are delivering this in, in, in seven years' time, but we don't have seven years to deal with this crisis. And so, obviously, we need to um, use overseas. I'm afraid that's just going to happen, but there's a global shortage of, of healthcare professionals. Um, you know, we're going to have to compete with everybody else to kind of to do this, but it's going to, in part, come from overseas. But it's also going to come, in part, from retention. And we need to think about how we actually ensure that our healthcare professionals don't retire um, and, and, and or don't go part-time and that we're using them as kind of productively as possible. And a lot of that actually re revolves around how we use more other healthcare professionals to free up GP and consultant time because, we, quite frankly, we're just not doing that at the, the sort of scale that we need to. And the reason is... Uh, Certain legislative things we can do around extending prescribing, but you know why are GPs still prescribing the pill? You know I mean, we we really need to be, you know, ensuring and freeing up that clinician time to get them doing what they should be doing, uh, which is treating uh, the sick. We need to be ensuring that surgeons are not spending one day a week, a week in the um, uh, in, in theatre. They need to be spending far more time um, uh, doing that. Um, some other issues around capacity. You know, one thing I, I do worry about because I. I whether it's true or not, I heard several stories about um, uh, some sort of ideological reluctance from some in the NHS to use independent capacity that we've, uh, quite frankly, had to, the government have had to purchase in to use. That We can't have the luxury of, of that anymore. We, we've got to kind of get away from the politics of that. We need to power through these uh, elective backlog. We need to... Uh, the surgical hubs and the diagnostic hubs. Well, surgical hubs have been talked about. Diagnostic hubs, I think we also need um, as well. And uh, we also need to think about tariff, I think, as well, because at the moment we're talking about changing you know, tariff, which is payment by results and health bill going through Parliament. You know, for me, you know, we need uh, to ensure that we have a tariff system that allows us to power through hernia, power through cataract, power through hip and knees, which are going to be a significant proportion of the backlogs, these big volume elective um, procedures. I could talk to you quite a long time about how we reform tariff, but I don't want to bore everybody. Um, but then, so that's that kind of one issue. The other issue, obviously, is social care. And just briefly, I'll just talk a little bit about, about that. I mean, I think um, we need to spend these three years, you know, until the money apparently is coming in to, to help solve our social care crisis, coming up with a plan that will solve our social care crisis, you know, and it can't be just sticking plasters over the current um, challenges that we've got. I think we need to... Very, when we talk about aligning um, social care and NHS and, and integrating them both, but you know, we need to bring other things into it. Housing, for example, I mean, I think you know, we need people out of residential and nursing care expensive settings for as long as we possibly can. We need to keep people in their own homes, we need to ensure that they're treated properly. If, um, if uh, social care is the Cinderella service of our compared to our NHS, well, the domiciliary home care is the ugly sisters, you know, it, it really is kind of ignored where it's a significant proportion of our social care. 
um, proportion. We, need, we just really need to in, ensure that we devise a system that incentivizes people to be kept in their own homes and people treated uh, in that setting. And whether that's a, some sort of commissioning based on outcomes or some other um, system, I think that definitely needs exploring. And just kind of finally, the third thing is, is on public health. And we've talked, touched on that slightly a little way. About what does levelling up mean? Well, we've got a huge obesity crisis in this country. The pandemic proved that without a doubt, um, because you know many more of us died of COVID, probably because we're overweight more, you know, than, than anything else. And um, that, that's a challenge. Diabetes is now consuming a frightening proportion of our NHS budget. Uh, we need to solve uh, that problem for the future. And I think that's what levelling up looks like as well in terms that we don't have lots of people in my constituency and other parts of the country that um, are not as wealthy as they might be um, having developing diabetes and having their limbs um, removed and all sorts of kind of problems associated with that. Technology and self-care is a huge part of this. You know, I, I'm fed up with people telling me that older people or people um, on low incomes can't use technology. They do all the time, you know, and we need to kind of do that. And self-care and managing conditions on technology is um, is part of that. You know, I could talk for a little bit longer. I, I'll kind of leave it with that. But, you know, on, on a sense of optimism and hope and all the rest of it, because some of the other kind of colleagues did this, I think uh, just two just two things. I think innovation has got the um, the way to kind of prove, get us out of this. The NHS has proved it can innovate. We had three years worth of innovation in three months as a result of COVID. You know, we've got to keep pushing that uh, and make sure that that foot doesn't come off the gas. And if this is a national effort, if this is national effort, that we need to, we need positivity and optimism, and we need our NHS staff and all the rest as part of this team to feel valued, supportive, and feel they're part of a national effort. I don't know another politician better suited to that, quite frankly, than Boris Johnson, because whether you, um, whatever you think of him, um, and I'm obviously a huge fan and supporter, but Boris is, is uh, universally positive and optimistic, and I think that's the sort of person we need uh, in this time of crisis. Paul, really interesting, uh, wide-ranging set of comments. And I'm going to put a couple of questions to the panel before opening up for Q&A. So I was really struck by one thing you said, that you know, the success of this is if in three years' time we don't have the same discussion. One really notable thing is that health and social care levy is for three years. So Anita, what do we need to do to not have this discussion in 2024? Well, in part, I think what we need to do is recognise that we are going to be continually talking about NHS and social care um, funding and capacity because we're, it's a huge part of what the state does. <clears throat> and it's, um, and the, the medical advance, the changes of our, our population mean that uh, we continue to need to decide what, what scale of services that we want. and. You know, that's public funding, we're a democracy, so we need to talk about it. I think what we want to do, though, is to be in a position where the conversation is different, in that yeah. it's not a conversation born out of crisis. Yes. Yeah? That it is a conversation, uh, and where we're very clear to the public, they can see that if the, the spending has delivered real uh, value, and actually the bigger these areas of pub public services become, the more important it is, I think, that we're able to to, to demonstrate value for money, but both both because it, it it it's so much spending, it has implications elsewhere. But also, actually, I don't think you can continue to make the argument to the public unless they're very clear that you're spending every pound very 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 wisely. But I think it is it's eroding confidence to think uh, that, that that we this won't be the core of politics 
for, for, for the future. But hopefully it's about the politics of success rather than the politics of crisis. Yeah, I'd take that. Thanks, Anita. I think that's a really interesting point. So if the challenge is demonstrating value for money, uh, obviously a lot of that is really about data and, and Gemma. Um, what do you think uh, you know, the government needs to be looking at or collecting data on in order to, to actually show that the spending is delivering something? There's, there's lots of the NHS where there is fantastic data. We had amazing real-time information on how many people were in hospital with COVID, how many beds were occupied. All of that sort of data on the sort of acute end of healthcare is fantastic. We have much, much worse data on what's going on with community healthcare. We have very poor data on social care, in part because it's fragmented across with lots of different private providers. And I think that did show through in the pandemic that you had a real focus on the problems in hospitals. It was much harder to get a handle on and really kind of get the public to understand what the issues were with what was going on with social care and with domiciliary care, which um, Paul talked about. So suppose my one call would be, let's get good quality data on community care, on uh, social care to really understand what are the problems, what are the gaps, where have those services been scaled back and where do we need to do more? And I think that might help to perhaps slightly overcome the, the tendency that political focus always goes on to the urgent over perhaps the important if you had a bit more sense of some of that important but not quite so headline grabbing uh, work that might help. That's a good point. I think, Paul, I'd be really interested in your views on this. I know you're interested in data in general. I mean, what like what more do we need to gather? So, we, you know, we're looking at a national health service and not a national hospital service. Well, <clears throat> on data, I mean, I think uh, I th I'm a huge supporter of, of better use of data because I think it's how you that's how you kind of track performance. And I, I think what we really need to, the problem, the problem as I see it is and the health bill may come some way to, to solving this problem is that there was a huge tendency some time ago um, to seem to be quite fashionable to try and let's take the politics out of the NHS, let's make them independent and, and, and all the rest of it. But as Anita quite rightly said, you know, you're never going to take politics out of the NHS because it's huge political issues, a huge element of what the state does. And when you, um, when you, when you have a, a problem with operations or, or something, people write to their MP. They don't write to Sir Simon Stevens or you know, um, anyone else in NHS England, you know, they, they, they obviously write to, to me, you know, in, in, in Peterborough. So, you know, I think um, an element of political kind of involvement in politics is, uh, sorry, in our NHS is good. And it comes down to this data point, because if you are going to hold um, NHS chief executives who are paid, um, or trust chief executives who are paid huge amounts of money uh, to account for performance and general KPIs, then you need the data to kind of prove that, and it helps for better decision making. We also need to throw open the windows and have an element of transparency in our NHS and figure out well, how they make decisions. You know, you don't have a situation where you've there um, for for hip and knee replacements. They you know they rationalise hip and knee replacements for those who. I have a BMI of over 30, or in some alarmingly cases of over 25, I and mean, that's me out. You know, but these kind of decisions can't actually be taken um, and concealed on page, you know, 243 of a 400-page document hidden online somewhere. We need far more kind of transparency over decision making in our NHS in order to get value for money, and ultimately, um, that's what that, the only way we're going to manage this elective backlog is if the NHS does become more productive and we get value for money. That's cool. Um, so I just want to talk about one kind of wider theme before we go to an audience Q&A. We talked a lot about immediate pressures and the backlog and staffing. But I mean, you know, over the longer term, I was really struck by Anita's point about resilience. 
um, yeah, has the pandemic illustrated the need for a more resilient health service? I mean, uh, Sarah, you wrote a really interesting piece for the FT the other day about what other countries outside the UK are doing. Um, you know, is there a case uh, for a more resilient health service after this? I think there's absolutely no question that health has to be at the heart of, of levelling up. And there's, I think, one way in which the NHS can actually play a crucial role, which hasn't been mentioned so much in the the levelling up documentation, but it's this phrase that one started to hear about the NHS being an anchor institution. In other words, an institution that not just provides healthcare in a community, but also provides high quality jobs that um, has a commitment to procure from local businesses. So the the it, it can actually play a role in driving up the the economic health of the community and health and wealth are obviously very inextricably uh, mixed. So I think that I, I, I think that's something that we do all need to to think about um, alongside uh, you know the, the, the more obvious ways in which we need you know as other panelists have mentioned to uh, act on you know preventive public health as we all know has been shamefully unfunded over the last decade or so it hasn't remotely kept pace with the uplift to the NHS England revenue budget uh, and you know public health England came under enormous attack in the earlier part of the pandemic but it had faced absolutely eye-watering cuts I think its budget was cut by 40 percent over seven years so uh, th there was an enormous challenge here but there's also an enormous prize I think in terms of making us a more resilient population. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, so, Anita, uh, public health, shamelessly underfunded. Uh, do you agree? And what should priorities for resilience be? Well, certainly <clears throat> the um, economic evidence, if we're trying to look at how to achieve health outcomes cost-effectively, is that um, a pound spent in prevention and typically the sort of services that Public Health, the P Public Health England and, and uh, local authorities deliver is, uh, is four <coughs> times more productive than a pound spent on the, uh, the, the treatment end. And it's been the goal in, um, in the UK and as it is actually in, in many other countries to shift the focus of the NHS from, as someone said, a sickness service mm. to genuinely a health uh, service. So it's one where you know taxpayer health service and individual interests are all aligned. We'd all like to live uh, healthier for longer. But but all so so invest looking at the balance of spending between day to day running costs and public health is right. Um, it's also the case, obviously, that if we're thinking about how we build our resilience for future health shocks, services are part of resilience. But actually, a population that is healthier is also part of the resilience. And that's money we'll never regret spending. So you know, if, if actually we could tackle obesity, reduce smoking, yeah, even if there was never another pandemic, yeah, that spending has not gone to waste. You mm. know, It's not like when we did the flu planning a decade ago and we had Tamiflu stock stuck in a warehouse somewhere you know, that aren't doing anything until you actually have the crisis. You know, in the case of a, of a healthier population, it's a no-regret uh, strategy. But I guess it's worth saying that whilst the NHS and public health services can do a lot, 
this is also actually about a much wider um, agenda to improve health. And this is where having a health component to the levelling up agenda is so uh, critical. Thinking about what, commun what communities need to become healthier, <clears throat> thinking about the role of business as well, and thinking about the contribution of other public services like transport, like education. Thanks, Anita. It's really strong when I comment that public health is four times as productive uh, as, as acute health. So it kind of begs the question, Gemma, if, uh, if all of this money is a brilliant, no, no regrets idea, why have governments found it so difficult to fund? I mean, I think that comes back to the, at least in part, to points we've mentioned before. Public health is not quite as obvious to people, and the underfunding of public health tends to manifest in problems that take quite a long time to develop and it's not quite so obvious the link between the lack of investment in public health and what the problem is. So you might, the thing you see happening acutely is lots of people ending up in hospital with diabetes needing uh, amputations, but it's not obvious that, that might have stemmed from a lack of investment in public health. So I think it's, they're slightly slower burn issues. I think better data could help with that to understand what is being done on public health. Um, in part, uh, there may be uh, issues with public health having been responsibility having been transferred over to local authorities. Um, there are obviously lots of, of positives from doing that because these are kind of interventions that really are local area based and have complementarities with other things that local authorities do. Um, but we, there has been a tendency over the last decade for local authority budgets to be cut much more dramatically than the NHS budget. And so those local authorities have faced choices between spending on public health and social care um, for both children and adults. So I think those may be some of the issues. Okay, thanks, Gemma. And so, Paul, public health, healthier population, local government, education, transport. What is the thing this government <coughs> needs to prioritise to build a more resilient health service? Um, that's, a, that's a very um, tricky question. I mean, I think it just comes down to, you know, um, what, what, what I said earlier on. I mean, I think, I think the NHS desperately needs to become more productive and get a bigger bang for its buck. Um, now, we've just heard that public health is um, a, a very cost-effective way of, of cost-effective intervention. You know, I've got no um, argument about that. I absolutely agree. And I think... Um, you know, public health, especially on obesity, um, is really now a must. We, we, we have had success with smoking cessation. Um, I know perhaps it's stalled relatively recently, but generally smoking, you know, the levels of people smoking has dropped considerably. But I think now obesity and diabetes is, um, is the, the biggest sort of public health challenge we face. And I think we, we desperately need to prioritise that. But, look, you know, the NHS, I mean, I hear what I need to say, and I, I don't disagree with her. We are all living longer. You know, we are going to, um, you know, the NHS is going to require um, funding and funding inc increases in the future. But, you know, it's already, you know, a huge, huge element of public spending. And the public won't forgive um, a, a government which puts up its taxes and then fails to get bang for buck um, in return. And that is the biggest, biggest challenge. It's about making sure the NHS is more, is more productive. And that probably involves, you know, kind of issues in three, three areas. And I've kind of said it the previous fringe. And the first is on management. And I'm very pleased um, uh, the, 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 the name slips my mind, but the Army General has been appointed to, 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 to look at this. And um, that's something I think is really crucial. We need to 
you know, if you look at my local authority, the chief executive of Peterborough City Council is also the chief, chief executive of Cambridge County Council. You know, the finance director is also the chief executive of several different councils. Um, and it goes on and on about the HR director, procurement director, and all the rest of it. The, the, the reason that had to happen because local government have not been um, had generous funding settlements recently, and they had to save money in their, their management. The NHS, I'm afraid, has got to do the same. It really does. There's no, you know, discussion in that now. Um, I think, you know, the NHS also needs to um, deliver considerable savings when it comes to um, when it comes to treatment. Um, and when I say savings, not necessarily financial savings, just treating more people. You know, we've got organisations like GERFT, we've got organisations like um, uh, Nice. We give them money to assess, you know, various different technologies and treatments and pathways and quality standards, and then we don't follow it. Um, well, certain trusts don't. I mean, what's the point in doing that if, if we, we're not going to tackle this, you know, kind of not invented here syndrome? People look at this for a reason, so we need to, you know, get these these things in place. And um, and uh, that will, I think, drive productivity. And I also think, um, uh, I've said it a number of times, if we improve uh, clinician, uh, clinician um, time to be doing the things they need to be doing, treating the sick in the, in the um, diagnosing people in the um, operating theatres, uh, again, that, that's what we need to do. We, they don't need to be spending, you know, kind of acres and acres of their time on bureaucracy, on, on uh, doing, you know, things they shouldn't be doing, quite, quite frankly. Um, we need other colleagues uh, in, in the health service to be doing a lot of their sort of things that uh, consultants don't need to be doing. And I think, again, that will improve productivity. But there are just three <coughs> things that I've identified. There are lots of other things we can do to try and ensure that we get bang for our buck in our health service. Great. Thanks, Paul. Uh, so I'm now going to start asking questions from the audience. We're going to take questions in clusters of three to get through as many as possible. Uh, okay, you've all already raised your hand. You don't need to be told that. That's good. Um, please keep your questions short and to the point so we can get through as many as possible. Can we go to right. the uh, lady in the green dress, um, the gentleman in the front, and the lady on the left-hand side? Hi, uh, Susie Martin of Alton and Southwest Conservatives, and also a nurse as well. Um, my question is about recruitment of nurses. Um, at the moment, the main way of nurse training is by doing the university degree, and then when they qualify, a lot of nurses, because they've got such limited experience, they're supernumerary for a year. Um, so effectively, they're being paid for a year and they're not actually hands-on. Um, and my question is about going back to the old style of a, a degree, of, well, apprenticeship, degree apprenticeship. You know, when I trained many, many moons ago, we were hands-on from day one. Um, we could do everything but take control of the ward. And then when we qualified, we were up and running. Um, and I just wonder why that can't be more implemented now. It would kill so many birds with one stone. You know, the students would ha wouldn't have the debt, etc., And you'd have a, a, a you know, a, workforce for that four years of training great thank you very okay. much yep sorry uh woman in the middle penny and then the gen in the front hi um emma me i'm a gp in uh, gp trainee in oxford and um so in, in primary care one of the main challenges which i'm sure everyone is familiar with is that you know very short appointments people gps find it really difficult to deal with that um but then you also look and you see that you know for People have like, you know, they see their GP a few times, they see somebody else, they see somebody else. So they end up seeing about maybe three, four times for the same problem. Um, and so it strikes me that I think we need to try and move towards more of a single assessment model to release capacity and then people get better quality care as well. And this is a part of a broader spectrum, I think, of 
it's about the way that people work and the way that you practice and the way that people view the professions and the specialties work together, um, which is which is basically the clinicians remit. And like GPs also, I think is under, their skills are underutilized. If you with the appropriate training and maybe some sub specialization for some GPs, you could manage the dermatology, the community gynae. So, what do you think about that, and how do you think we affect change in that? Great, thank you. Hello, Tony Johnson, Cheadle. Uh, I just wanted to ask about governance because I think that's vital and uh, the accountability. Uh, Greater Manchester had health and social care devolved to it um, six, more than six years ago, yet we've had nothing, no reporting on the six, six and a half billion that we started off spending. And uh, I think there should be accountability to local people so that we can see where the money is going and where it's wasted. I mean, normally when organizations come together, you look for quick wins, but there have been nothing. Great, thank you. Can so we hold Andy Burnham to account? Thank you. Uh, so three really interesting questions. What about degree, uh, nursing degree apprenticeships? What about moving towards single assessments? What about governance and local accountability? Paul, on the governance and local accountability question, what do you think? Well, I mean, I completely agree um, with the gentleman. I, it's, it's um, similar to what I said, really, in, in, in my remarks. I think we really need, do need to have um, political and um, accountability um, on, on, on performance. You know, like, as I said, said to you earlier, I think whether it's NHS England and, and specialised commissioning or whether it's localised commissioning, I, I, you know, I sometimes feel frustrated that there is no way to influence the criteria in which is it, uh, that, that's being applied. You know, my um, CCG, it's slightly different because it's, it's a different thing, but my CCG has only just uh, reinstated um, fertility treatment. It's one of the only sort of um, areas of the country that didn't offer fertility treatment on, on the NHS. Now, whether you feel they should or shouldn't, this was looked at by NICE and said that they should, you know, and they've totally just ignored it because uh, of short-term funding pressures. And when I kind of challenged this as a, an MP on behalf of my constituents, I was told it wasn't any of my business. But, you know, ultimately we, we ended up with, you know, all the MPs working together and we ended up getting it re-established. Re but the point of our story is this, is that I think a lot of the time, you know, decisions are being made on commissioning, decisions are being made on, on criteria, on, on, on rationing and all sorts of different things with no real accountability. We need to throw open the doors, again the windows, bring the fresh air in, bring that scrutiny in and and I mean and that's how you improve performance because without data and transparency uh, there's no real driver there to improve performance. So I completely agree with the gentleman. Thank you. So let sunshine in. Um, Anita, what about nursing degree recruitment? Is that a solution to workforce problems? So I do think apprenticeships are really important route into nursing. And there is now the degree level uh, apprenticeship. I think um, it should be a goal to expand it more. And, and I think that for, for three reasons. I think, I think one, it's important for numbers. But um, <clears throat> secondly, I think there are some of the areas of nursing that are struggling most, if you take learning disabilities, mental health, community, areas that often took people um, from other walks of life first with different range of rich lived experience, which it's really valuable. They don't necessarily want or can able to just go off to <clears throat> at university and study that way. You don't change, you don't reduce the standard by doing a degree level apprenticeship, you keep the standard exactly as high, but you, you get all that richness of lived experience. The third thing is the point that um, Sarah made about this horrible bit of jargon, anchor institutions. <clears throat> so 
we've got lots of parts of the country where we've got people who need good jobs. Yeah? And we've got lots of parts of the country where the NHS struggles to staff. Co coastal areas, more remote areas, very common here. And we know from lots of the work around the world that if you can train people locally, they stay and they're very uh, loyal. Whereas trying to parachute people in and persuade people to move to those areas is often very hard. And then you've, you've got a workforce that reflects the community it serves, understands a lot of that local context and a lot of those issues, and you're actually bringing wealth and economic opportunity to people in those communities. So I, I was thinking, thinking holistically around this and really growing the apprenticeship. And I don't understand why, but there are a lot properly, there are lots of problems at the moment where the NHS is saying it's actually much more expensive for them to train someone as an apprentice than it is to take an undergraduate. And that just seems one of those things where, where government has got to fix that because that is in nobody's interest. Great, thanks Lisa. That sounds like it might be a rare case of a win-win in policy. Um, so primary care, it seems assessments, to some extent rationalising the number of people that people see. Does anyone on the panel want to come in on a primary care question? I, I don't mind coming in a bit because I think it's a really important point as well as about the inefficiency issue in that a lot of the time when people talk about inefficiency and when they've had care the real things they see are the being passed from one bit of service to another seeing someone that person couldn't give them the answer that they needed couldn't you know they couldn't actually do something because something else hadn't been ordered <clears throat> and this is where often we talk about inefficiency and productivity and it sounds very off-putting for both the public and professionals but actually it's the bugbear of most patients and most professionals working <clears throat> working lives and it, it is where where we actually need to make sure then and one of the opportunities I guess in the bill with is some of the new infrastructure around integrated care systems is to look at all the different um, care that's provided and how we use all of that optimally and, <clears throat> and making sure that we do that will be absolutely critical so to the point about retention because a lot of this is a huge frustration in people's uh, uh, jobs and in the end they kind of oh, I've just had enough I can't yeah. do this anymore. Great. Thanks, Could I just say, oh, I think there's also something here about incentives that hospitals are still largely paid on activity. So there isn't the incentive for them to see people treated at an earlier level. Because if I understood the questioner correctly, you were talking somewhat about subsidiarity, as it were, in a, in a clinical sense, people being treated um, uh, uh, before, you know, be, being seen holistically for all their conditions in a way that might mean they don't end up in hospital. And as Anita says, I do think the integrated care systems, the idea they're going to work with sort of blended budgets or to a single control total, there will be much more incentive if, it, if they do work as, as intended, I think, for people to be seen in general practice and treated in general practice or in the community and not only in hospital or not end up in hospital. Thanks, Sarah. That's a really good point. Um, let's go for another round of questions. Let's go for the gentleman at the front first, uh, the woman on the left-hand side, and then uh, the person in the middle. Thank you. Uh, I'm Dr. Kaz Frisby. I'm a GP in uh, London, clinical lead GP in London. I'm also a Conservative councillor in Epping Forest, and I chair the CFOP NHS chapter. So we've talked a lot um, on the panel today about uh, resilience. We've talked a lot about public health, and we've talked a lot about productivity and inefficiencies. So um, just to come in on a couple of points, I think 
you know, uh, for me as a GP of seeing patients every single day of the week, um, you know, patient empowerment and public health go hand in hand. And I think we need to, as a, a government, we need to think about what we can do to help promote patient empowerment. I think that poses a really big challenge. We've seen in the media recently, there's been a significant uproar at um, lack of face-to-face -face appointments or perceived lack of face-to-face -face appointments. So question to the panel on that front is what can we do to help promote patient empowerment and get rid of some of the negative narrative, which has been uh, very, very sadly, very, very um, dominant in the media. And on the point about resilience, we've uh, again discussed at length about resilience within the population, but the recent survey carried out by the Royal College of General Practitioners showed that actually morale within primary care is at a record low. So, you know, on the resilience front for GPs, um, I was reading uh, an article not too long ago, 27% of all newly qualified GPs are thinking about um, moving on and moving abroad or, you know, leaving general practice altogether. So what can we do uh, to help promote resilience within the primary care workforce? Great, thanks. Two good questions. How to empower patients and how to uh, boost morale amongst GPs. Thank you. Um, Rachel, um, you made a really good point earlier, Paul, when you said about keeping people in their homes taking care of them, providing them with dignity and care is incredibly important. And within the system, that should be incentivized. As you'll probably be aware, unpaid carers, their family, their friends provide a massive amount of care to people that, for whatever reason, are, are failing to be independent in that way. Does your incentivization extend to the, those unpaid carers? Great, thanks. Really interesting question about unpaid care. Um, my question is probably to Paul. <laughs> um, we know that a lot of NHS doctors also see patients privately. So I was just thinking, um, what about disincentivizing NHS doctors or, or forbidding them to see patients privately until the issue with waiting list is sorted? So at least temporarily, because I personally know people who try to get appointments through their GP, NHS GP, and were unable to, but when they went private, they were able to get appointments. Yeah. Great, good question. Uh, Paul, I might put that to you first. Should we be forbidding uh, doctors to do private work? I'm not entirely sure that would be the right way forward. And, and let me just tell you why. It sounds counterintuitive. I, I think... One of the ways that we're going to deal, the only way we're going to deal with the elective backlog is effective use of the independent sector. Um, and they, the independent sector uh, have, did provide to, um, capacity during COVID. They did. Um, but this is, going to this is going to require a, a monumental effort. And there has been a deal struck with the independent sector. But the NHS, a lot of the time, is not really a very good customer. And it's got to make sure that when once having bought, bought that independent sector capacity, that it um, that it needs um, to use it um, effectively. And as I said earlier in my remarks, I'm, I, I worry that there may, in isolated incidents, be a, a reluctance to use the independent sector capacity because of you know ideological reasons. I think um, a lot of sur surgeons who operate in, in the independent sector, as well as um, in our NHS will ultimately be treating the same people. Um, and uh, I think um, they need to work hand in hand with one another rather than necessarily just turning around and saying, you should only now operate in the NHS. Well, 
Well, I mean, I think the, the vast majority of the, the backlog is, not, not, is, believe it or not, is not necessarily... I mean, there are going to be elements of, of, of um, you know, serious sort of operations. I mean, all operations are serious. Don't, please don't misquote me. But, yeah, I think a lot of it is going to be hip and knees, it's going to be, it's going to be hernias, it's going to be cataracts. And these, these are important because they deliver, you know, quality of, of life issues. I, I, I would hope there would never be a situation where someone who requires a quite an urgent cardiac you know, procedure does not receive it because someone is privately paid for a hernia operation. I don't think that that would that exists. Yeah, me, let's bring that exchange to an end there. Um, Paul, if I could just ask one more question to you. Uh, I've got this question about empowering patients. Um, what do you think about that? How could the government try to uh, better empower people to make decisions about their own health? Um, well, I, I think it's it, it's part of it. Again, it's, it's what I kind of said in my in my remarks. I mean, I think there is a um, an element of we assume, for example, if you're old, that you can't use you know, um, various different um, uh, Techno technologies. I think that's been proved to be completely wrong, actually. But believe it or not, through COVID, because we've had to keep in touch with people and, you know, talk to people, you know, around the country. And Zoom has been used, and you know, a lot of older people have, have been perfectly capable and um, of use, using it. Um, but it's. I, I also think that um, a lot of it is also about upskilling our population with the use of of, of various technologies. Um, I think various remote monitorings and things like that are, are um, perfectly. Um, I think very worthy of investment and making sure that our population are, are able to um, check their own um, own health. I, I also think the self-care um, is also a, a significant issue. Once you take away something that people have been used to, it's very, very difficult then to, um, then, then to tell them to go back. And I think a lot of the kind of issues we're facing at the moment with GP appointments is because people were obviously were very used to being, being able to go and see their GP whenever they needed to. Now, capacity has, got, has increased significantly. I do think, you know, there needs to be an effort for anyone who needs to see their GP face-to-face -face should be able to do so. And I think it's absolutely wrong. Um, that that's not the case, but I also think it's um, uh, the public should understand that just because you've got a runny nose, it's not an excuse to go and see your GP. Great, thanks, Paul. And Anita, on this question about kind of workforce retention and workforce resilience, what might be done about that? <clears throat> so I guess a couple of things for primary care. I think we do need to worry about the um, atmosphere around primary care at the moment and how we can get probably. Part of this is much clearer communication um, with people about what to ex what to expect and how the service can be run. So we have done, as people have said, sort of like three years of innovation in, in three months. Yeah? And in some places then, how to get through, how to access, how to use the service is very clear to people. But in other cases, perhaps not so. And there's a, a, a point of stabilising the model. But, <clears throat> but also... I think this matters both, you know, to, to so that people can use services well and get what they need, but also that actually um, the atmosphere around primary care at the moment, risk is becoming a vicious cycle then, where um, people who work in primary care just just feel like they can't do a good job, they <clears throat> and uh, that that it, it, it's too stressful and they leave and then it becomes worse. Um, part of the answer in primary care is about 
which is what is happening at the moment, is about moving from a model which is um, principally or, or predominantly GPs to a full team mm. um, and, 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 and workforce. And that is happening. Um, but again, that needs to be carefully communicated so people's expectations are clear. That you're seeing a, a physio because the physio is the right person to you, not because the GP, GP is being difficult. So that's a key part of it. But also links partly to the point about patient empowerment because there are a range of cases where, for example, I mean, we know in this country we've worried about it for years that we don't use the skills of pharmacists as well as we could and we don't use the high street pharmacy as much as we could. Know that things like... So, for example, we did a project, funded a project which looked at where, where children had turned up in a, particularly babies actually, young children, turned up in A&E with fever. And it turned out that they actually really didn't need to be there. It, primarily, this was about reassurance. Yeah? In the moment when their baby's got a raging temperature and they're really scared, they're not very receptive to anything. But once you've been there uh, once and everything's calm and they've established that the baby's okay, that's a really good moment to teach the parents to say, if this is, happens, and these is the set of combinations, then this is what you do, yeah? And this is what you should be worried about. But actually, if it's this, then you can manage it in the following way. And you actually give people more confidence and more skills for the next time. And there are moments, aren't they, with these sort of interventions where we go from just the narrow interventions you know, to broaden that out to support people so that they feel more skilled and confident. And finding those opportunities for that intervention. Chronic disease is the obvious one where you put on all the, the programmes. And some of the expansion in the GP workforce is with this idea of things like social prescribers and others who can do more of that to help skill people up so that they feel more confident with their own health and often actually as much with their loved one's health. Great. Thanks, Anita. I think the only question we haven't come to so far is just this question of um, unpaid care and support the government for <coughs> to people to, to do unpaid care. Does anyone on the panel want to yeah, come in on that? I'm very happy to. I think... Sorry for not answering your question. You, you directed it to, um, to me. Um, I absolutely agree with you. Um, you know, that unpaid care... I mean, just think about the amount of social care costs that unpaid carers stop, um, you know, prevent, quite frankly, and, you know, and how much they save the taxpayer. So I think unpaid carers are, um, are, des are in desperate need of, A, recognition, and I think, uh, B, um, significant input into whatever this plan is that we're going to develop over the next... Um, the white paper we're going to... Um, we're going to develop and we shall turn into the plan to deal with this in, in three years' time. Great. Thanks, Paul. I think we've got time for one very short uh, last question. Uh, I'm going to come to uh, Richard in the middle row. Uh, tell you what, no, sure, that's fine. Yeah, let's go to this gentleman. Sorry, Richard. The question's on time. Sure. Sorry, sorry again. So, um, I'm a GP as well. My name is Tiva. I'm also um, have the pleasure, uh, luxury of sitting on the uh, local acute trust as a non-executive director. So, I see both ends of the floor. Um, um, I think we've gone around the, the room, sort of room in com conversation about primary care and the flow into ED. I see this problem every day in that patients, I think there's a misunderstanding of how the new system works and there's a lot of GP bashing because of it. And we're delivering 20% more activity than we've ever done before. And there's still GP bashing from all angles, which doesn't help the morale, doesn't help the workforce. I'm one of the representatives for the Royal College GPs in the first five, within the first five years of qualifying. Every day I get a message in the group from the representatives of newly qualified GPs or someone resigning from general practice. That's every day. That's people representing general practice, not just people on the ground, because of this monumental task which I'm having to tackle. Um, and we, we get patients rocking up to A&E because of this lack of understanding of how the system works. 
with things like cough. I had I did a clinic on Thursday, which was 33 patients all day. All were coughs and colds that they were coming in, where I've got patients who are knocking on my door because they can't get the operation that they need. They've been sat on for 12 months. They would have gotten in two months pre-pandemic. So that means I can't deal with the usual care I used to do to provide primary care. And that means I can't do the primary care prevention stuff like cardiovascular disease, which prevents conditions happening. And therefore, there is no more public health anymore that we used to do ourselves in primary care. So this is the knock-on effects we're having. So I think the fundamentals here is morale and retention. Retention, I know we're trying to do lots, but it's still not happening. People are leaving. We're at a, we've got less GPs today than we did five years ago. I don't know who you want to, however you massage the numbers, we've got less GPs today and it's getting less and less every day. Uh, thank you. Uh, so I think to kind of put that into a question for the panel on on kind of primary care in particular, we talked a lot about longer term measures. Um, what can we do in the short term to improve uh, workforce retention? Let's say over the next year. Uh, Anita, start So I do think um, getting the current model stabilised in terms of people understanding the workflow and GPs almost like, and the government and NHS leaders all being on the same page about this is how primary care is gonna operate, this is what you can expect, this is what your responsibility is to deliver is quite an important um, stage to, 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 to go through. Um, we are making some progress with the wider staff into primary care, but we need to go uh, further and faster on uh, that as well and um, and we need to um, obviously uh, focus on we've got a wave of older GPs um, older GPs who say I, I, I'm 54 um, I've got a lot of GPs in their 50s who are, you know are, are thinking of retiring uh, very early um, and I think really exploring what we could do to keep them will be very very uh, very very critical but it's going to be a bumpy ride Thanks, Anita. Uh, Paul, can I come to you? Um, yes. Um, so, I think the answer to the question is is um, a little bit is what Anita really said about um, having holistic services in primary care. You know, and ensuring that you see the right um, person for you, uh, and whether that's a nurse, whether that's a, a GP, or whether that's a physio or something some, something or other. That that really needs to to be. Developed. I also think you need to free with time. Okay, so there's two things here. So you know, forty. I fully understand that a lot of your time is spent on bureaucracy. A lot of it's probably spent on forty percent of it. Someone's told me earlier today on fitness notes and requests for medical records and all this sort of. I mean, we, the government, need to help you free up your time to do that. But you also need to help yourself, and you also need to ensure that um, you know you are um, following up on nurse-led prescribing. That you know you're only doing the things you have to do rather than the stuff that you've always done. You know, what, you know, I use the, always the example of prescribing the pill. You don't, we don't need GPs to be doing that. And I know that we do it much less than you used to, but you shouldn't be doing it at all, really, in, in my sort of view. And then f finally, another challenge, another challenge is a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the anger I get about um, people not being able to see their GP face-to-face -face in my constituency comes from the style of the triage service that your that GP practices are providing. Now, there's a 30,000-person um, GP practice in my constituency. 80% of the people don't speak English as a second lang uh, first language. 50% of people don't speak English particularly well. They'll see anybody um, who kind of comes um, uh, to see them. 
and you know they have them queuing up and they're going to see them but also they they have managed to triage quite effectively a lot of people that don't need to come uh, and see them and to be fair it's a younger population because it's a lot of people um say who are, um have come from overseas um but they do that really really effectively but the, the but the um on the other hand i get complaints from people where the triage service is totally ridiculous you know they they're not called back and said they were going to be they you know, they're messed around, they, you know, they don't feel like they've been particularly served well. And if we can challenge, I'm not saying that's typical, I'm just saying that's, that does happen in places. And if we can challenge, um, solve that problem, I think you'll find a lot more satisfaction, a patient satisfaction with primary care services. So it's a challenge really about how GP, uh, GPs um, practices handle their triage service. Thanks, Paul. And uh, Sarah, are there any final comments you want to make on primary care? Well, I was care just going to make a point about the structure of primary care that we have in this country is by and large um, a structure in which somebody wishing to become a GP partner has to invest in that practice um, and I think, you know, and take on the sort of massive admin burden that comes with being a sort of co-employer almost. And I think that's created considerable problems in recruitment, particularly in poorer areas where people, you know, don't actually don't feel comfortable investing in the sort of bricks and mortar of a surgery. So I think a move towards more recognition that in some areas, particularly, we need more salaried GPs. I mean, of course, we we are getting more of that, but I think that could be one way of helping the recruitment because no wonder these fifty-something doctors are getting exhausted you know after 30 years of not only practicing medicine but being a sort of small business owner in effect I mean that's a very exhausting uh, sort of duality so yeah all right great thanks Sarah um, and with that I'm going to bring the discussion to a close um, for those looking for more reading on public services I'd self-interestedly <laughs> recommend the IFG's annual performance tracker do check out the Health Foundation's Real Centre which has got a wealth of fascinating analysis data evaluation it's a geek stream um this is the final ifg event of the day we've got a packed day tomorrow starting with discussion about the impact of technological change on public services exchange room one at eight so for those up early or for those who don't go to bed uh please do join here in the next panel uh thanks for attending thanks to those who asked questions thank you for running